Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. Today's guest is Chelsea Babolski, who graduated from The Ohio State University with a degree in history. As a writer, she has a soft spot for characters with broken pasts, strange talents, and obstacles they must overcome for a brighter future. Her debut young adult novel, The Wood, is available now. Her next release, Remember Me, releases August 6th. Chelsea joined me today to talk about querying for five years, the stress of breaking up with her first agent, and the importance of maintaining a polite, professional attitude while in the query trenches. 16-year-old Alice Burton has a crush on a college guy, but the night he finally notices her, so does her dad's creepy best friend. Wasted Pretty by Jamie Beth Cohen follows Alice as she tries to protect her future, her body, and her heart. My listeners are always interested in learning more about the agent hunt. A lot of my listeners are aspiring writers. So tell us, first of all, who your agent is and how you landed them. So my agent is Andrea Somberg um, with Harvey Klein, and she is just amazing. She's everything that I could ever want in an agent and more. She's the perfect cheerleader. She always gets back to me right away when I email her with anything, whether it's like a relevant question or me just freaking out about some (laughs) random author thing. She's always right there to answer me. So I love everything about her. Very thankful to have her. Um, But it took a long time to find her. The Wood, which is my first book to come out, was actually my fifth book that I wrote in pursuit of publication. And that happened over a span of five years. And so in those five years, in those five books, I probably queried several hundred agents at Mm -hmm. least. Mm -hmm. The first two books, at the time, I thought they were really great for what they were. And now I'm like, hopeful no one ever sees them. (laughs) But you know, I did get some agent interest with both um, that ended up going nowhere, but they would say, if you ever have another manuscript, make sure to query us again. And so I would keep track of those responses. And then with my third book, I actually never even queried it because I wrote it and I loved the whole foundation of it. I loved the story behind it, but I just knew from both like a marketing standpoint of what publishers were looking for that really didn't fit any mold at the time. And I also just knew that even though my voice was becoming stronger as a writer, it wasn't quite there yet. So I was like, instead of querying this, I'm just going to take it as a learning experience. I don't think I'll ever pull that one back out either, just for the same reason as I don't think it really has a place. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I'd go back to it, but it was a good learning experience. And then my fourth book was a young adult steampunk romance that I still love. And someday I might go back to it and try to do something with it. It got a lot of attention. I entered it into several different contests, one of which was Miss Snark's First Victims, mm-hmm. Baker's Dozen. 
which I don't think she does anymore. No. But at the time, I think I got like, I can't remember the exact number of agent requests off of that. I want to say it was like nine to 12. And then I also at the same time did the very first Pitch Wars Mm -hmm. contest. I was a mentee in that. And I got 12 full requests off of that as well. And so really great responses. I did end up getting my very first agent through Pitch Wars. And he was really great. But I noticed as we went on in our relationship that we had just different professional styles and also different visions of what I should be writing and how I should be writing it and different things like that. It just didn't mesh well. Um, Great person. Just (laughs) we didn't work well together. And so we ended up splitting, which was very difficult. After four books and four years, Mm -hmm. you finally have this and you think, this is it. It's finally happening. And then to have to pull that plug and start again was really difficult. And at that time, I actually was thinking that I was never going to be an author. It just wasn't in the cards for me. And so as I'm writing my fifth book, which was The Wood, my first book to be published, I was at the same time like looking up law schools and like trying to figure out how to get my life back on track. I ended up querying only my top five agents at that point because I really was in this like horrible place where I just thought this isn't meant to be for me. And I wrote this book because I had to, because the characters were there and they wouldn't let me not write it. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, Andrea Somberg was one of my top five. I think she got back to me within like three weeks with representation. And so to go from my first couple books querying hundreds of agents, waiting months upon months to hear anything, to get an agent within like three weeks of leaving my previous one, I think it just goes to show the importance of never giving up first and foremost, but then also just keeping a professional demeanor with agents um, throughout rejections and just being a nice person because they remember that and they'll want to work with you again in the future, hopefully. (laughs) They absolutely do. I love your journey because mine was very similar. I also, my fifth written finished novel was the first one I got published. I also had hundreds upon hundreds, if not a thousand rejections. I like what you're saying though about maintaining that professionalism because while it is true that agents receive two, three, four, five hundred queries in their inboxes a week, if you have been at it for years and you were and I was as well, they will remember your name if you are in front yeah. of them often. And I had multiple agents that would email me back and say, I remember you. You've <laughs> queried me before. Thank you for your continued interest. This book is not for me, but please keep reaching out because they see your determination. They remember that you are professional and that you are trying to write a query correctly and you're really putting the work into it and you're paying attention to their submission guidelines. And if you are continuous with your attempts, it's not necessarily means that you will succeed, but it does mean that they will notice you and they will remember you. They also will remember you if you are rude and not in a good way. Yes, definitely. Never be rude because that doesn't help you at all. (laughs) I want to talk to you a little bit about rejections. Uh, I don't think I've talked about this on the blog before, but one of the reasons I kept writing, I was at it for 10 years. I didn't achieve representation, but I did come very close in that I had an agent respond to me. It was Jennifer Loughran. Jennifer responded to my query and said, you can really write. This is a great book. If you had queried me with this book, because it was an urban fantasy, if you had queried me with this book 
four years ago, five years ago, I would have signed you and it would have sold. Right now, it's not going to. You need to keep writing and keep querying mm-hmm. me. And that rejection made me keep writing. I was ready to quit. I was ready to yeah. say, just like you. I was looking at master's uh, degrees. Mm-hmm. I was getting ready to enroll myself to go get my master's of library science because I was going to throw in the towel and say, I've been doing this for 10 years. It's time to quit. And it was a rejection that made me keep trying. And I want to follow up a little bit more on what you were saying about letting your first agent go. Because, yes, mm-hmm. that had to be terrifying when you had been trying to yeah. get an agent for so long. You managed. And then because of professional differences just not meshing personality-wise, you had to let that person go. Yeah. I mean, terrifying. So yeah. how did you finally make that decision? It was so hard. I remember sitting in front of my computer. I had written the email to actually like terminate the contract. And my husband was standing there and I had to like have him help me push the button to send it mm-hmm. because it was terrifying, you know, to, to have gone so long trying to get an agent for me to decide to split ways. That was really, really tough. You do it and you think I have no guarantee that I'll find another agent. Like this could be the end of my career right here is what mm-hmm. you're thinking to yourself. Now, of course, if you're determined, especially in my case, like if you've built up those relationships that you can then reach out to, then that does help. But still, you're thinking, is this the biggest mistake of my life? And thankfully, when I had signed with him, I had had other agents interested at the time from those different contests. All of them, including Andrea, sent back to me, you know, because you have an offer of representation on this right now, I'm not going to offer just because I feel like it still needs a bit of work mm-hmm. before moving forward. But they were like, literally, if you part ways at any point, (laughs) please contact me and let me know. So I think they may have even been interested in hearing from me just off of that steampunk romance. But I'd already written The Wood at that point. So I sent that one out. I don't know that they would have taken it on, but they would have at least remembered and acknowledged. And that would have also continued to give me that push to keep going, I think. Um, So that's why that professional demeanor and being nice and just maintaining those relationships is so important. Yes, absolutely. That's why you don't respond to that email saying, well, I found somebody else that wants this without the work. So ha ha, I'll see you on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, no, it doesn't work that way. Exactly. Yes. I want to follow up too on what you said about contests. You mentioned Miss Snark's first victim. Uh, That was a very (laughs) popular blog about 10 years ago. And it's no longer in operation, I don't believe. But I also participated uh, with Miss Snarks and the Baker's Dozen. I did get nibbles off of that. And of course, you mentioned Pitch Wars, which is very popular. Talk to me about contests and how to use those and the boost that you get from them. I think the best thing about writing contests is the fact that you can so easily network with so many different people at different stages of their writing careers. Um, Because I think you have to go into it with that attitude. I think if you go into it with the attitude of I'm going to get in this contest and I'm going to get a bunch of offers of representation, it's going to be amazing. Like you're most likely going to have those hopes dashed at some point, not because it doesn't happen, but just because the likelihood when there's so many people trying to get into the same contest, I think it's better to just think to yourself, okay, I'm doing this with the hope that I'll be accepted into this contest and I'll get agent requests and everything. But even if all that happens is I connect with other writers who can be possibly future critique partners or just cheerleaders along this journey. Like that's such an amazing thing all on its own. So I definitely think contests are amazing things to do um, for both of those reasons that it can get you visibility, 
but it can also help you network in a career where, you know, there's no water cooler that we all go to to talk. So it can be a very lonely career. And so to meet those people online is amazing. You can talk to somebody across the country who's going through the exact same journey as you, and they'll understand what you're going through in a way that your family and friends just can't. If you want to have a community that actually understands what it's like to be rejected when you wrote a novel, yeah, it's got to be another writer. That's all there is to it. Coming up, learning how to balance writing the next book against the time investment of marketing your backlist. Fiona's dad can't visit her in the U.S. because he's on a terrorist watch list. When she learns he's always wanted to be with her, Fiona flies to Belfast, Northern Ireland. The troubles are long over, right? After finishing school, Danny seeks to escape his abusive dad and the pressure to join a Protestant paramilitary. Chance brings Danny and Fiona together, but one truth may shatter everything. All the Walls of Belfast by Sarah J. Carlson. So remember me is your second book. Your first was The Wood, which you mentioned. And I had a guest earlier this month that I talked to about the phrase sophomore effort, which is often used (laughs) when it comes to second books or second albums, whatever the medium is, and rarely is it used as a compliment. So what do you find to be the specific challenges of the second book? It definitely is a challenge and it's across the board. It's something that you hear all the time. I don't think I experienced it quite in the same way as other people do, just because since The Wood was my fifth book that I'd written when it got picked up, I'd already kind of gotten into this mentality of just keep writing, like just keep working on the next one so you don't think about what's happening with the one that's on submission. Mm -hmm. So even before The Wood was picked up, I'd had Andrea as my agent and she was shopping it around, but it hadn't been picked up yet. I wrote a middle grade that I loved. It was very like Tim Burton-esque. I may go back to it at some point and try to polish it up. I don't think it was quite primetime ready at the time, but that kind of got me to continue writing. And then even when The Wood had been picked up before it was published, I wrote Remember Me. I wrote the next book before The Wood was published. So I wasn't thinking about how many copies did The Wood sell and can I ever do this again? Like I just kept that mentality of keep writing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has really helped. So if I did go through the sophomore effect, I think I went through it earlier, like even before I got an agent, (laughs) because I just told myself to not get too wrapped up in expectations of other people, whether it's publishing people or readers. You know, at some point you have to remember why you love what you do and just keep doing it. When it comes to expectations, also managing your own is a really big thing. Obviously, you went through five years and five novels of trying to get published. So you, your expectations had already been managed for you, right? Yes. (laughs) And I think that that's really healthy, you know? Yeah, I think I'd gone through so much rejection that to me, just getting published was like I'd hit my dream just in that alone. So anything that happened after that was the cherry on top moment. So to me, it was like, I got published. I'm good. Even though, of course, you want your book to be like a New York Times bestselling book. I was at a place where I was like, if that doesn't happen, I'm just thankful that this dream came true. And I think that helped a lot with that too. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was just thinking earlier today, for whatever reason, in my own publishing journey, because I was querying for like 10 years, my first book that got published was a post-apocalyptic survival novel, Not a Drop to Drink. I was fortunate enough that it just slipped into that tail end of the post-apoc era, but it 
really did just squeak in. I was on submission for six months and people kept saying, yeah, this is great, but that genre is done. So we're not going to pick it up. I was already having conversations with my agent about the next thing. We got to write the next thing because this one isn't going to be what gets published first for you. And at one point there was a, a an indie publisher that had expressed interest. They no longer exist. They folded shortly after, but they had expressed interest in my agent said to me, well, so-and-so is interested, but I've heard rumors about authors having difficulty getting paid and it's in the wind that they're going to be going under. I don't think we should pursue this. My first reaction was just, I don't care if I don't get paid. I just want a book published. <laughs> right, right. And my agent was just like, no, 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 no. You, you get paid. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes you can get into this mentality especially when you've been trying for so long to get published and you've gotten rejection upon rejection where maybe your expectations are too low. So it does help to have your agent be like, no, your, your work is worth getting paid for. <laughs> and I really was just thinking about it this afternoon because I just remember being that naive that I was just like, no, just put a cover on it, please. They have good covers. <laughs> I like that company. Going back to that idea of the sophomore experience, what about marketing, appearances, social media efforts? What did you learn the first time around that helped you on the second time? Or was there anything that you learned that you were like, okay, uh, I'll never do that again. This was something that was a waste of my time or just didn't work. Yeah, I was really fortunate because I had several author friends who I'd met through things like those contests. They were 2015 debuts, so their books debuted two years before The Wood did. They were very open with me about their journeys, their experience, especially with marketing. And so I was very fortunate in that I got to kind of learn from them a little bit before even going into my own. And one of them was very open about the fact that she worked really hard at marketing. Like she did literally everything you could ever think to do and more marketing wise and took on so much onto herself. And in the end, she couldn't tell if there was really a difference. Like if she hadn't done everything under the sun, if, if it would have sold any better or any worse in that time, because she was focusing so much on marketing, she wasn't writing anything new. And so she wasn't able to do the number one piece of advice, which I think is extremely true, which is nothing sells backlist like frontlist. She had nothing to put out there for frontlist because she'd focused so much on marketing. And so seeing her go through that already put me in a, a mindset of marketing is important. It's not that it's not, but it shouldn't be something that consumes you to the point where you're not working on the next book. And so I already kind of was going into it thinking, okay, I'm going to market it, but I'm not going to go too wild with it. And then I think the biggest thing I learned from marketing the wood is that there's a lot of advice out there on everything you should do, but I think you need to find what works best for you and what doesn't drain you. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, Twitter and Instagram come very naturally to me. Those are fine. Facebook, I want to get better at. I'm trying to get better at it for some reason. It just doesn't come as naturally to me to check Facebook. So I'm working on that. The one thing that I know from many authors is very important is the newsletter. I would love to be amazing at newsletters. Again, I'm going to work on this. But I learned that for me, it just does not come easily or naturally. And I can spend half a day or even a full writing day trying to put a newsletter together and I realized that's a full writing day I just missed out on. And especially now that I'm a mom, my time is so limited that I cannot be spending writing time 
trying to put together a newsletter. You have to figure out what works for you. And if it's draining you and if it's keeping you from writing the next book, then maybe that's not the particular thing you should be doing right now. As long as you have other things that you're doing that are working for you, like don't try to do everything. Don't try to do everything. I personally used to be on every single platform out there. And for the life of me, I couldn't make Tumblr work. Nobody gave a shit about the stuff I was doing on Tumblr. It didn't matter. I I don't know why. I couldn't figure out Tumblr. Whatever I do, whatever works for me on every other platform on Tumblr, no. It was just this big void for me. And I tried for like three years. And finally, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm wasting my time. Tumblr doesn't work for me. And I deleted my account because whatever the magic is that works on that platform, I don't have it. I haven't even tried Tumblr just because... Even as somebody like just looking at Tumblr, I don't always understand it. So I just haven't even tried it. I'm sure it's amazing. I just, it doesn't come naturally to me. No, me neither. And Pinterest is the same way. I don't have any interest in figuring out how to use Pinterest as an author. I know some people have luck with it. It seems to me like Mm -hmm. if you're going to do that, you're going to have to really lean into it and give it a lot of effort. And I'm not going to do that. I have a really healthy Facebook page. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, Facebook, because I I always hear everybody saying Facebook is pointless now. I have a really effective Facebook author page. And I guess it's just, I think maybe the librarian outreach that I've done and from being a librarian for so long. So it's in Uh, not a teen crowd it's an adult crowd that I have on Facebook but Facebook and Twitter and I'm starting to understand how wonderful Instagram is so (laughs) that is my bread and butter you mentioned newsletters and I'm going to tell you I just spoke with another guest right before I started talking to you and we had a long conversation about email newsletters I told her and I'll repeat the story that I have been doing it wrong for a very long time. For years and years, I've been doing newsletters wrong. Everyone kept saying, you have to have a newsletter, you have to have a newsletter. And my newsletters were just bombing. Every time I would send one out, my open rate was like 5%. My click rate was like one, it was terrible. And I'm like, why, why do people say you need to have this? And finally, a friend of mine who is a fellow author who is on my mailing list emailed me back, like uh, off of my email, my promotional email list and was like, Mindy, you're doing this wrong. I was just like, oh, I am? And she said yes. And she recommended a book to me called Newsletter Ninja. It's by Tammy Lebrec. She's like, buy this, read it. You will be amazed. Read it in like an afternoon and applied the things that she recommended. And now my newsletter has like a 50 or 60% open rate and like a 20% click rate. Like it's insane. And they're very... Very simple steps. So I highly recommend it to you. And once you learn the really simple steps, you're just like, oh, it really makes a difference. So I highly recommend that to you, Newsletter Ninja. Lastly, the key to writing horror, especially for younger audiences. With a jolt of inspiration and research-backed philosophy, a map for wild hearts, How to Make Art Even When You're Lost helps writers to create with less friction. This interactive guidebook gives writers the tools to make their art, no matter what their inner critic says. Pre-orders open now. Learn more at andreahanna.com. So I want to talk to you for a little bit about genre and specifically about horror, because that is the area that you write in. And I think it's a tricky one because I always see readers clamoring for it. 
shows like Stranger Things have millions of watchers, but horror has yet to be the it thing in publishing. I've never seen it blow up the way that other genres have. And in fact, I even see publishers veering away from it and commenting that it's difficult to market. So as a horror author, what is your take on that? Like specifically a YA horror author, what's your take on that? Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because I have so many thoughts. To use Stranger Things as an example, because it is huge. I think the biggest thing is that horror, while it's at the center of Stranger Things, I don't think that's actually what draws people in. I Mm -hmm. think the very first people to watch it, when it probably were for the most part, horror fanatics who saw it and thought, oh, great, like something for me. And then they told all of their friends about it, whether their friends were into horror or not, not because of the horror aspect. I think the majority of people push it as you have to see this show. I've never seen a better representation of the 80s. So it was the nostalgia of the 80s and how beautifully they captured it. I mean, down to every little detail that I think drew most of the audience in. And then the fact that horror was a part of it for people, whether they loved horror or not, they just went with it. They were like, this is great. I'm into it. You also have the human element that's so important of people relating to these characters Mm -hmm. and wanting to see where these characters go. But I think it is important to have something else that your readers outside of your horror audience can really grab onto. So for example, with Remember Me, we pitched it to editors as the horror of The Shining meets the romance of Titanic. Mm. So while horror is a big part of it, the romance is actually just as big of a part. And so it can actually reach larger audiences in that sense. Another big thing in terms of marketing that genre that can be so difficult is I think you have to get your cover design right. So for example, The Wood, I love the cover. It's everything I could have ever wanted to be and more. But the thing that surprised me was when I was doing school visits, the number of middle school readers who were reading up who tend to say this to me, they would look at the book cover and say, it looks too scary for me. Mm. And the book cover, it's a white cover with an autumn leaf on it. And it looks like there's blood dripping off the leaf. The blood is actually kind of metaphorical because if you read the book, you'll know that the wood um, is this magical place where instead of autumn, like the leaves just changing color in the autumn, it's almost like they're painted and the paint rolls off the leaves. And so it's red paint rolling off this autumn leaf. So it's like what it actually is, but it's also alluding to the fact that the wood has this sinister side. Mm -hmm. So I would explain to them, well, it's more of an atmospheric creepiness as opposed to really scary. But that just opened my eyes to the fact that a cover in the horror genre can turn off a lot of readers who might think, oh, that's too scary for me, even if it actually isn't. It was really important to me that my Remember Me cover convey... The fact that there is this darker element to the book, but that that's not all there is. And when I actually got the first cover concept, it was exactly the same as it is now. It has these beautiful chandeliers. It's a little dark. It feels very like gothic romancy. But the girl on the cover, who is kind of see-through, so you can tell she's kind of ghostly, she looked a lot more like the ghost from The Ring, which is very creepy. So I emailed my uh, design team back and I said, this is amazing. I love it. I'm just worried that people are going to see it and assume it's like a collection of ghost stories or that that the horror aspect is all there is because it really takes away from the romance aspect. My cover designer came back with five brand new covers, including 
the same cover, but with the ghost girl changed to be less, less creepy. <laughs> and that's the one we ended up going with. So I was very happy with it because I love the cover overall. I just wanted to make sure I didn't turn people off who might think, oh, that's too scary for me. So I think it's important to have more than just horror as a part of it. So for example, like Stephen King, I think is the big name, you know, in, in adult horror that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason, there's several reasons he was so successful. And I think part of it was just timing. When his first books came out, I mean, that's when I'm pretty sure like The Exorcist and Poltergeist and all these huge movies were coming out. And so it's kind of perfect timing. But he's also very edgy and at the same time, very literary. And I think that that drew a larger crowd into his books than maybe would have otherwise. And then on the opposite end, you have young adult in between. You have Stephen King on the adult end. And then in the middle grade end, you have authors like R.L. Stein, who were very popular when I was a kid. Um, I'm not sure if he's as popular now, but I think he is. But I think that horror for younger markets works well because a lot of kids have a lot of fears and to address them in a fun way is actually very appealing to them. I think the young adult market is harder because you just need something special about it to really push it over the edge to reach those audiences who otherwise wouldn't pick it up just like Stranger Things did. It had this special nostalgia for the 80s that really captured audience attention. And I think you need that in the young adult market too. So I do think the next Stephen King of young adult is out there. I think they just need to figure out what makes their book special, just like every author has to do that across every genre. So the thing that gets me about Stephen King is that, yes, he is the iconic horror writer, and I love him, and I've read everything he's written. But his first book, the one that broke through is Carrie, and that is technically a YA. Mm -hmm, Yes, very true. And I think that's really funny because I hear so often, and I do think it's true, that YA is a difficult place for horror, and I think it's hilarious, even though it is true, because the iconic horror novel from The King of Horror is a YA novel. Definitely. I think, you know, at the time, I don't think they even had the category of YA. And even today... I don't know. I mean, it might get placed in YA if it came out today, but I don't know if it would have just because some of the content of it, publishers might have pushed it into the adult realm. I'm not quite sure, even though it centers on a teenage girl. No, I definitely think that um, at the time, adult was the place to go, but I think it could work as, as YA today. The other thing I want to follow up on, you mentioned the covers for horror, which is very true. It is tricky. When we're talking about marketing, your cover is the face of your book. That is the first thing people are going to see and decide whether or not they're going to pick up and actually look at the writing and the blurb on the inside. Covers, I've always heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I've always heard that if you have a horror novel and it is a creature feature, that you never, ever put the monster on the cover. I haven't heard that, but it makes sense just for the same reason of you don't want to alienate those readers who might look at that cover and think, oh, that's too scary for me, because there might be other things in the book that they would really love. And then they would kind of jump onto the creature feature train of like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. So I can definitely, definitely see that for sure. I mean, I think it's totally fine if as long as you specifically want to hit that horror market of like, I don't care whether it reaches a broad audience or not. Like I want to take care of the readers who actually really love this genre, then I think it's great. But I think in order to cross over into other audiences, I could see why you wouldn't necessarily want to feature that. And 
for my personal writing, my horror aspects of my books tend to be more atmospheric mm-hmm. than like jump out and scare you. I mean, I certainly have a couple of those moments, but because of that, it's really important to me that the cover conveys that it's it's more of that atmospheric horror, just so that readers know what they're getting. What are you working on right now and where can readers find you online? I have a middle grade that's finished. And then I also have one young adult book that I'm plotting. So it's in the very beginning stages. Who knows if it'll go anywhere? (laughs) And I have another young adult that I am in the beginning stages of drafting with a co-writer. So that's really exciting and fun just to try something different. And then I have an adult Edwardian romance, which is so different from what I typically write, but I'm really enjoying it just as something to just have fun with. I think sometimes you need a pet project that's just for fun. And that's kind of what I'm doing with that one. And we'll see where it goes. But especially right now, I have one child and I'm preparing for my next baby to be born in August. And so I think it's good for me to have several different projects that I can just kind of pick up or leave because my brain is just not in that space to like really dedicate to one book right now. So so I have several different projects up in the air right now. Where people can find me, uh, they can find me at uh, my website, chelseawabalski.com, as well as on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all under Chelsea Wabalski. And my name is spelled C-H-E-L-S-E-A, and last name is spelled B-O-B-U-L-S-K-I. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.